they might spin a widget left and I would turn it right. You know, you just want to see how it plays out in the real world. So I think for us, making sure that we have the right amount of revenue, but still being able to maintain the rollout and keep track of, you know, how it's being used in the field is important. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Are you tired of having to look in so many places to find the information you need as a medical device professional? Are you looking to level up your career, your device, or just your day-to-day -day performance on the job? Greenlight Guru Academy was started with you in mind. Our goal is to bring you online learning on all the topics that are impactful for medical device companies. The Academy represents years of experience helping companies get their devices on the market and keep them there. I can't tell you how many times we've heard people say, I wish I'd found this sooner in my career. So we want to share it with you as well. So come join us at academy.greenlight.guru. Create your account and start learning for free. That's right. It's absolutely free. If you do find a paid course or a membership that looks right for you, however, we'll, we've got your back. Listeners for the from the podcast can get 25% off any of our products in the Academy by using the code PODCAST25. Just enter the code during checkout and start leveling up today. Thanks for learning with us at Greenlight Guru Academy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today's episode is one where we recorded it live in Boston, and uh, it's with Dr. Christy Sheehy Bensinger. We kind of talk about her founder's story and just kind of a high level of where she's at and some of the challenges that she has focused on or overcome. Dr. Christy Sheehy Bensinger has over 15 years of technical entrepreneurial expertise in the optical and ophthalmic engineering realm. She has numerous scientific publications, direct clinical research experience with neurodegenerative patient populations at top research for institutions like UC Berkeley and UC, uh, UCSF. She's the founder and CEO of Seelight Technologies, Inc., which is an AI-driven health tech startup with the big vision to create digital technologies and solutions to tackle both eye and brain health. Dr. Sheehy Bensinger has successfully acted as the principal investigator for three NIH SBIR STTR grants, a phase one grant entitled Retinal Eye Tracking as a Diagnostic Tool for Traumatic Brain Injury and Concussion, which came with recent follow-on phase two funding for two and a quarter million dollars, and a phase one STTR grant investigating fixational eye motion as a prognostic and monitoring tool for multiple sclerosis. She successfully brought in over $8 million from venture capital, angel, and grant funding to her organization to date. And as of May 2023, her team has introduced a groundbreaking new technology, the RetiTrack, which is spun out from Dr. Sheehy's PhD dissertation work at UC Berkeley. And uh, it's now uh, been brought into the clinic as an FDA-cleared eye movement monitoring, monitoring device. So really hope you enjoy this episode. As I mentioned, it's, uh, it's, it's recorded in front of a live audience. Um, at our True Quality Roadshow. We still have two stops on our roadshow this year, and I'm sure we'll be doing it again next year because it's been wildly successful. It's been super fun. The next one is in Orange County, California on uh, October 17th, and then the one after that will be in uh, Amsterdam, November 8th. So if you're in either of those areas, definitely check us out. We'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out. We hope you enjoy today's episode in the founder's journey and overcoming challenges of startup life. 
Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. With me today is Christy Shihai Bensinger. I hope I'm saying that name correctly. Shihai Bensinger. Shihai Bensinger. Thank you. Um, so good to have you on the podcast today. Uh, for those of you listening, we are doing this in front of a live audience in Boston, Massachusetts um, at the KPMG. We're really excited to, to be able to have this uh, conversation. But why don't we start with a little bit of an origin story? Tell us about how you've come a long ways and, and actually... I'm going to tell a little bit how I know Christy. I don't know her as well as I would like, but she and I met um, sort of two years ago at the MedTech Innovator when I heard her pitch uh, to to the, the the investors there, and I was really impressed with the te- technology and the way and her pitch. And uh, two years later, I am so excited that I get to talk to her on stage. So, what's your origin story? And tell us a little bit about where you came from. Yeah, so my background is actually engineering. So I'm a trained optical engineer. I worked at Corning for a little bit, which is a glass company in upstate New York. A lot of you know that here. And they paid for me to get my master's, which is always awesome. But I decided I wanted more of a a biomedical spin to what I was doing. And so I ended up applying to go back to school, and I ended up doing my PhD at Berkeley. So moved to California and did a PhD in vision science. So being able to apply my optics, lasers, all that cool stuff to, to the vision field. And so the core technology that we have here at Sealight actually came out of my PhD work from Cal. And so it's been really awesome to see kind of what you've been working on to get your PhD become something that you can then bring to the world. And so for me, that's been the most rewarding because I think a lot of students think that their thesis will be on a library shelf, never read, collecting dust. <laughs> that is, it, you're absolutely right. I talked to a lot of students and I'm sure a lot of them think these different things. So tell me though, what about the transitions in your career? Because working in academia and then going on to MedTech Innovator or raising money, that had to be a, a shift in mindset. And now even where you are today, how do you handle those transitions? Um, what did it look like? Yeah, I think it's definitely there are ways that it prepares you and ways that you're like, holy crap, I just jumped at the deep end. So being trained in academia, you're trained to think. You're going to assume that your first solution probably won't work. You're taught how to iterate and just think through problems. And so I think in general, startup life is a series of things that you haven't solved yet. And you have to go through them methodically and kind of make your way through to get to the finish line. On the flip side, though, in academia, there's very clear goals. Like I publish a paper, I get my thesis written, I get a PhD, um, I get a grant. Startup life, you you start off kind of begging for money. Let me show you that I can do this. I promise my science is awesome. I have 20 papers. I didn't really have 20. I have a bunch of papers here that show in the science works, but everyone's looking for a reason. I felt like in the beginning to say no. And so you go from this environment where everyone's like excited about science and wanting to learn But on the flip side, in the investor world, they want the risks mitigated. So the most novel and exciting science, if there's risks with it, you have to prove why that risk is bigger or why that risk is worth the reward. And so for me, early on, you hear a lot of no's. You get, you know, you do your first pitches. You see see investors say, no, you're too early or that's not quite the, the route that we're looking to do. And you have to pivot and iterate and constantly keep pushing forward. And so that was hard at first to hear a lot of no's and then take those no's and turn them in your mind to like, not now. So one of the things that I hear investors complain about is, 
you fall in love with your technology and not necessarily the problem? Was that something you experienced? And if so, how did you handle that? So with my technology in, in grad school, I had presented it at conferences and I had professors asking me to build devices for them at their universities. I got to be a visiting scholar in Germany and build for them. And so eventually I was like, I don't want to keep building for fun. I want to make sure that we can transition this to something that could become a business. And so the big part of doing that transition is making sure that your unmet need is one that's worth it. So for me, I had, you know, family members with eye motion issues or issues where the eye brain connection might be impacted. And so coming from personal experience and kind of observing that, it can it help motivate me to think that that would be a really great space to try to work in. And the best thing you can do is just ask potential customers, is this something you would pay for? So it was really just like talking to, I think the NSF has like an iCorp program, talk to 100 potential customers, see what they have to say, see if your unmet need is worth being paid for. And if it is, then you've got something. So I think doing those initial interviews, making sure that people were interested in what we were doing, wanted to put money down for what we were doing, and not just saying, oh, what a great science project. Yeah. That makes sense. So when you when you went through that process and now you have a company, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced moving from academia, like you said, into business? Maybe you, now you've got some funding, um, but now you're building a company. What were the things you really focused on when it came to building that company? To start, it was hard because you have a device, you have your idea, you know the unmet need. But a lot of the time with medical device, they want validation. They want proof that what you're going to do works. And so it's always chicken and egg of, well, I need the money to run the study to show you what you want. And so we ended up getting two NIH grants that allowed us to do our proof of concept validation work. And without those, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere because we had to show what our iMotion can do and that there's actual validity to what our machine could output. And so for us, those grants, which is totally non-dilutive funding, were the best way to really kick it off to show that we were worth it. And then after that, you can go on and do, you know, accelerator programs and, and start to get that angel and venture capital money. Okay. So that's, that's interesting to think about for, from the, uh, the non-dilutive funding. I know that's one of the focuses that's obviously you want to keep on your company. Um, how do you make the decision to let go part of it or, or make, you know, do the equity game? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really about what you envision for your company. If you think that you'll stay a small company and not have as big of a reach, being self-funded um, and using non-dilutive funds is an easy yes. We're not going to hit, you know, that many that much in revenue. We're going to keep it small. But if you have a vision to help millions of people, if you want to scale so that you can put it in clinics across the whole country. You usually can't do that with just a non-dilutive grant. Usually you need a lot more funding and and honestly expertise from venture capital or from angel investors who have done it before and can show you the way in which to scale properly. And so for us, you know, our vision was we want to help the world. And so taking the venture capital money with an idea that we would have, you know, everyone wants to build that unicorn, but have an idea that could help so many people that you know, a percentage of something, a small percentage of something huge could end up being more than a big percentage of something small. 
Yeah, that's a, a hard principle probably to put in place. It's mathematically, it makes total sense. I want to ask you a little bit about good money, neutral money, bad money, if we could, and just a minute, if that's something that you're interested in. But the other, but before we get to that, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. We have kind of an audience right here today of a lot of quality and regulatory. Um, did you use equity? And, and maybe I'm asking selfishly, like, okay, so maybe I'm a regulatory professional. I'm listening to this as CEO of a, a medical device company. Um, what am I worth potentially to a startup like that? I'm, I'm curious, did did you use equity to to get talent, or how did that look? If not, we we're gonna have to edit it out. You guys, sorry, we'll we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so we we didn't end up using equity early on. We were able to fund consultants, and so we you know we had regulatory consultants, we had reimbursement consultants for CMS. Um, you know, we learned very early on as a small team that we needed people that were experts in the field, and so. We sought them out with the funding that we had to make sure that we were doing things, you know, dotting all the I's and cross, dotting all the I's, crossing the T's. <laughs> Again, we'll edit it. <laughs> <laughs> um, very cool. Okay, that makes sense. So, let's, okay, back to my question about good money, neutral money, and bad money. You're probably familiar with it. What What are your thoughts on that? And and how did you go about a- approaching money, whether it's good or bad? Yeah, and I think honestly, that's evolved over the course of the company. I think. Early on, you're so excited about any money that would come in that you're just like, oh, God, we did it. We're funded. Um, And then in the future, when you're doing bigger rounds, these investors have a lot of interaction with you. They're on your board. They meet with you maybe weekly, monthly, depending on the type of investor you have. And so you want to have an investor that supports your mission, but also supports you as a founder. And I find that there's not always that alignment. And so the best money comes in the form of someone who wants to make you as a person the best leader you can be, but also scale and grow the company to, you know, to to help others. And so I think the good money, bad money is a, is a real thing. And I've been lucky in, in my seed funding round that my two lead investors are phenomenal. I mean, we have, I can say them, we have Yamaha Motor Ventures, which who know they did healthcare, but they do. I thought they were just boats and pianos um, <laughs> or motorcycles. Um, and then we have creative ventures as well. And so having groups that are supportive of first-time founders, of female founders, of people that are doing medical device. Everyone always says, hardware is hard. Add regulatory onto that. It's even harder. So it's it, there really is the idea of good money, bad money is a real thing. And, and- if you heard any of the last panel, I love failure stories. So if you have a failure story or a bad money story, I'd love to hear it. I'll give the example just so the audience is kind of aware of what I'm even thinking. So a bad money example that I'm thinking, correct me if I'm wrong, would be something like maybe I'm a software as a medical device and I go to a SaaS investor who typically invests in technology and he thinks, okay, I'll get a return quickly, but you have to educate him about the regulatory environment and the slowness through the process and things like that. So that might be a bad money situation. Um, whereas maybe you're better off going to a medical device investor who recognizes the length of time. Do you have any examples kind of like that from your own experience? Yeah. So with our company, we are an eye movement monitor. We are basically uh, just FDA cleared 10 days ago, I think, not even two weeks. So it's a really exciting Congratulations. time. Congratulations. And what we do is we look at the back of the eye, the retina, and we see how that moves. So if you've ever been to the doctor and they said to you, follow my finger, look at my finger, look at my nose, 
they're doing an eye tracking exam on you, not in the most objective way. <laughs> and so we can then provide a machine that can give you really objective ocular motor function outputs that medical professionals can then interpret and use for clinical care. So for us, we have a hardware component and a software component. And digital health has been a type of startup that's been really hot in the last couple of years. A lot of wearables, uh, people that use AI for healthcare. And so, you know, we, we have software and we have an idea that in the future, potentially we could use AI. And so I thought, well, maybe we could be digital health. And so I would go to pitch to investors in the digital health space and say, hey, we have a future AI play. It's not right now, but, you know, see the big vision with me. And then they'd come back and say, well, well you're a piece of hardware. And so for me, I wanted to share this vision of where data could go, but I was limited by the fact that we had a machine that had to go through regulatory clearance. And a lot of the data, the, the digital health companies might not have that regulatory hurdle or that hardware hurdle. And so it was a big lesson learned for me when I had done a bunch of, you know, um, prepping for fundraising. I had a huge digital health tab on my, you know, outreach page and almost all of them had said no. And I thought I could spin it in a digital way, but we weren't ready yet. A lot of them said, well, come back once you're cleared. Then we can really focus on your data and AI because your risk won't be there. So that was a lesson learned for me of just being able to accept where you're at right now and use that to get to keep moving forward. And so this this is a really interesting conversation in my mind, even from a regulatory quality perspective, because knowing what a, a CEO is looking for or their goals or where they've been is probably helpful in knowing how you why you need to get through when you need to get through. So another question I might ask is, um, I, I know a lot of companies, they may want to be acquired. And so they're probably thinking, okay, well, I, maybe I'm not going to think about manufacturing because we're going to be acquired before we, we get to manufacturing or maybe um, something along those lines. When, if you look at the data, typically acquisitions happen post-market, it, it, it seems. And so I'm curious what your goals are and how, you, how, that, how your different goals may have uh, altered your approach. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. And I think for us, our goal is how can we get the solution out to as many people as possible? And we're always open to what that could look like. So if that looks like, you know, a future Philips comes over and says, we want to acquire you, we're going to help you scale big time. We're going to go from your 40 clinics to 400 in the next two years. That's huge. That's our goal is to be able to get as many devices out there to help as many people as possible. If that's something that we can end up doing on our own, we're open to it too. So I think it's really creating that goal internally for your company what you want to go for. And if acquisition is a way to achieve that goal, great. But if it's just acquisition for the sake of acquisition, maybe don't do it. Okay. That makes sense. All right. So we also talked a little bit about quality and the culture of quality. So you talk about building this company. Um, so I'll put you on the spot here. How have you instituted or have you instituted a culture of quality within your organization? Any any thoughts or tips? So we have a total unplanned plug, but we use Greenlight Guru. Um, <laughs> we talked a little bit about this before, right before we, we hopped on. So we use Greenlight Guru and that, and that is because we aren't experts in quality ourselves. And so one of the perks for us of having Greenlight is that it comes with humans. So the idea that you're not just taking a QMS software and then someone says, good luck, have fun, you're going to be great. You have someone that actually 
takes you through each step of the process. I mean, we had someone literally email us last week. How's it going? I was like, oh my God, they care how, how we're doing. So I think that for us has been huge. And we are a small team. So I will say to start, we used um, a contract manufacturer to build the device where they have their own QMS. But we, need to in, we needed to integrate that QMS in-house so that we would have a QMS simultaneously. And so that's where Greenlight Groover was come in over the past few months as we integrate our own quality in and start to build that culture in-house as we gear up for a future distribution. Okay. That may, just side note, um, who emailed you? If I might ask, do you remember the name? It's okay. I if can't remember the okay. name, but it was it was really nice yeah. to just see how someone cared how we were. <laughs> there, there are certain certain ones. If it was Madison, she would probably hug you in person. So anyway, yes, <laughs> they love you. Um, okay, so we'll move on from that. What what about uh, the the CMO? How how is your criteria? Maybe any vendor. I'm curious how you because you talk a lot about the consultants. Um, you probably had to have a lot of criteria in place, even with the big vision. What was some of your criteria as you went through and chose these different um, vendors, consultants, the things you came up against? For us, one of the big things was transparency. So for us being able to work with a CMO that really allowed us to come along for the process and not just, here, give us your specs, we're going to build it. We wanted a really iterative, iterative back and forth because when you're building something new for the very first time, there's going to be a lot of hurdles you'll overcome. And so if you're open about them along the whole way, you won't reach a hiccup where you're like, oh, shoot, we should have redone those specs. Something didn't work. So transparency for us was huge and also just experience in the ophthalmic space. So people who have done something in the eye who understand some of the the subtleties of using, a, you know, a system that you have to look at an eyeball. So what is the difference, you know, the spacing between two eyes from chin to eye, all of those ergonomic type things that you have to think about for usability. If you've worked with a company who has worked through that with other firms, you're going to get through things quicker. So the theme that I feel like I hear you talking about is people. So you really want to work with human beings, whether it's transparent with CMOs and so forth. Um, What are some I don't know. Maybe this. Maybe I shouldn't ask this. Curious if you had any non-human interactions with with people, and and well, how do you how do you filter that out to to determine whether or not this is really a transparent company? I think when we first started talking with different CMOS, the willingness to give more than just one reference. So here's like one person that we know is going to say something really nice. The firm that we worked with gave us like three. Here's three people we've worked with. So I'm like, okay, that's a breadth of opportunity. Not everyone's going to have a perfect experience. Um, So having kind of that ability to be open to someone saying not something perfect, I think is important. Again, that transparency, again, when working with with humans is, are they going to give you enough information to make a decision? Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, so now just 10 days ago, you said FDA clearance. That's fantastic. Um, what does it look like now for the future? And how is your relationship with your regulatory person right now? And I'm just kind of thinking a little bit more uh, along the interaction and the the relationship, a CEO to regulatory um, and how we could scale that thought out. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so for us, the, our regulatory strategist, I mean, <laughs> I'm like super cheerleader right now. I'm like, yeah, you got his clearance. Um, for... For the stage we're at right now, a lot of it is registration. So, like, have you done your UDI? Are you going to register online? Like, it's a lot of semantics now that we're cleared to do the official things. So, 
we're still very active. It's like you have this illusion that once clearance hits, everybody pops a bottle of champagne and suddenly your devices are falling off the shelf. Money's being thrown at you. <laughs> but there's a lot of just things that you have to go through checkboxes to even distribute. So we're still actively, of course, working with our regulatory strategists to make sure that we're doing all the, the proper things before distribution. That makes sense. Sometimes when I think of quality versus regulatory, and I shouldn't use the word versus, we had a little bit of discussion in the panel earlier today about quality and regulatory and the interaction between the two. Um, I like to think of it as quality is like a defensive line for the internal um, organization and your regulatory is the one who runs the ball um, and to the different agencies potentially, and they have to work together. It doesn't really work. Um, but uh, when when it comes to the leadership and really driving that culture of of importance across the organization, is that something you focused on or thought about um, impressing on the rest of the organization? The uh, um, the culture is uh, the the quality is everywhere concept. Is that something you've thought about? It is something I've thought about. And honestly, when you first start a company, I would say for a lot of founders that are engineers or academics, it's not the first thing you think about. You think, oh, I have a cool thing, sell thing. But I think having a supportive team, so my co-founder, he's doing a lot of our AI. He does a lot of the engineering as well. Um, he came from a field in his own previous startup where he knew quality. And so for me, joining powers with him and understanding, oh, wow, okay, he can explain to me why that's important, um, what we need to do internally to kind of gear that up and how to translate that. That was huge for me because I hadn't had a previous experience with a startup and he had, and he could share those insights. And so I think for first-time founders, if you don't have an experienced co-founder, you know, the type of people that were on the panel earlier today, just checking in with those types of experts is huge early on because if you wait, you're going to miss that ability to become a quality first organization. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, so at I got to speak at RAPS last year um, with a, a, a guy in Minneapolis, and we spoke on the quality love languages. And I like to talk to people about the different languages across the organization because yeah, I learned early in my career, finance doesn't speak the language of product development. They just didn't like it when I came up with these ideas that I thought I had. But And, and everybody kind of speaks a little bit different language. You got to learn some of the jargon. What advice would you have for a quality or regulatory professional when it comes to CEO? Have you have you experienced that? And and uh, I know you probably have to speak every different language. What are your thoughts and advice you might give to a med tech professional when it comes to to speaking with upper management? Speaking their language their language is super important. So for a CEO whose background is engineering. If you can kind of tailor it to a little bit of an engineering spin, or if a CEO's background is science or medical, um, giving it kind of that background. So for me, if I was previous engineer, you're building all these really cool things. You're you're creating new CAD models. You have SolidWorks. We need to keep track of that. We want to know where you got from step A to step Z and everything in between. And then I could have directly link, oh, as I'm building this new thing, I need to just keep track of what I'm doing. I mean, it's layman's terms in that respect. But if you say it in a way that they're going to follow along with their own expertise, it's much easier to absorb. Otherwise, you can might you might think about quality as this, this scary thing of like, oh my God, we have to implement it. I don't know how. But if I can compare it to what I already know, then that's easier. I love that. The idea of knowing the, the, the background of a CEO, because I mean, it's hard to imagine. 
I, I can remember one CEO I worked for. He did. He he uh, he had a programming background, and he asked for to see some code. And we're like, "What? <laughs> no, you know, want, well, you're a little embarrassed of what we've got there." But uh, but but that's a really good point. Knowing the background of the people you're list, you're talking to, that's a good point. Another thought I might, or another question I might have is, you kind you you are where you are, and I'm sure a few years ago it's probably hard to imagine where you are. What advice would you have for yourself a little bit early on, maybe particularly around building your team? Um, or in the early days, if you look back at yourself a few years ago, do you have advice you would give yourself if you go back, go back there? So much. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things I think is most important is getting people passionate about the journey. So I think for anyone that would join your team just to potentially think about the benefits of making money or just have a nine to five, if they don't care about your end goal, if they're not really excited about how you could help millions of people in the medical field, they're probably not going to be a good team member because startups are hard. We describe it a lot internally that we are fixing a plane that's flying. And so some days you have a lot of air and you have some room to, you know, move a few screws, but some days you're really close to the ground and you sure as heck better screw those in fast. So I think if you're passionate about what you're doing, those days are going to be easier. What about any advice you would have for a med tech professional that you interviewed or spoke with early on? Any advice you would have for that person? The way in which the panel up here relayed how important quality is early on, it was very relatable and understandable. I feel like a lot of the consultants I spoke with, they didn't necessarily have this idea of like, you should get quality early on. Here's how it can help your organization. It was here's what I do, here's my expertise, here's my resume, here's all the groups I've worked with. And the idea of why they're important is usually left out. It's almost like it could be assumed. And I think for larger organizations, you can totally assume that. Everyone's going to know exactly why you're needed, what boxes you can help check, what things you can move along. A startup might not know. Mm. And so if you can give them, here's all the reasons why I'm awesome, which is what they all did, but also say, and here's why you need me or someone like me. Yeah. That would have been the missing piece, I think, that would have helped. That's a, I love that because it's kind of evolving my thinking a little bit. It's almost as if you have to recognize your own value yeah. in order to, to portray that value. I want to ask the audience what questions they might have because I don't always know what the audience is thinking. You know, yeah, I usually do, but I don't always. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Any questions from the audience? Do do you have any questions for? So just a question. When you were getting started um, and and building it, um, one of the challenges that I've seen, for example, in the past um, is when I was managing teams of people, some were coming from medtech background, some not from medtech background. So engineers from other uh, fields. It was kind of first attracting, but also retaining that talent once they get in and they understand like, oh my God, this is the medical device world. <laughs> I have to document all this stuff. I have to work on all this paperwork. So how did you attract that talent, but also how do you keep that talent once they were in, in, uh, in-house? I think going back to the company mission, again, is crucial. So if you have people passionate about the mission, if you have someone who said, my family member suffered from this problem and your machine could have directly helped that, a bunch of our people on the team that that's happened to. So like they're very personally motivated to go along for the ride. And that's always so rewarding to see when you don't have that personal motivation, how can you bring that excitement to someone new? And I think that's really by 
again, the, the company culture. So is your culture welcoming? Is your culture um, open to a mistake? I think when startups are moving so quickly, people worry about perfection. If you're open to the idea that while moving fast, something could happen, you have to change lanes and keep going, and that's okay, I think it opens people to the idea that it's not so regimented and structured and scary. When people think about documentation, sometimes it can be scary. But I think if you give them the ability to see themselves in the position and not have to be perfect, that can help with some of the more stringencies of medical device world in general. There's a lot of, uh, I've worked for a lot of companies that that maybe do different things. Uh, I remember one company working with where they had multiple quality management systems um, crammed into one. So you think about like FD, FDA, of course, FAA, what if you have a defibrillator working on an airplane? Um, but what if you have multiple product lines? One is not ever going to be on an airplane, but we still subject it to that quality management system, those parts. Well, now you have a bloated quality management system and you're the, the frustration. It's amazing how people just don't want to do work for work's sake. It's just kind of interesting how that works. People want to do meaningful work. Um, so I think that's a good point, recognizing that you can move fast and you can, uh, but, but also re- examining your own processes is really, really a good idea um, always. Any other questions from the audience? Hi. So um, I had a question on um, the regulatory pathway itself. So you just mentioned that um, if you want to move fast, then there might be some mistakes, not mistakes, but some some loopholes, which is never perfect, right? So um, do you plan to use, like, to follow everything? Like, when do you say that, yes, we are in a place where we can now follow everything by the T. And when do you understand that you're at that mature level as a company? I think the important thing to understand is that you can document a mistake or document a spec that you prove to be wrong. So for example, if I have a spec for, I don't even know, um, tolerance in a screw, and I realize that that screw actually isn't going to withstand shipping, I can go back and change that and all of that can be documented and there's totally nothing wrong with that. So I think a lot of us think that perfection has to be had in order to allow someone to keep track of it. And that's just not the way a startup can live because we're constantly iterating. We're on the edge of creating something entirely new for the world. And so if we waited till everything was perfect to start documenting it, I don't know if a startup would ever be able to because there's things every day that I think we can do better. Great point. Oh, yes. Just a quick question. First of all, thank or congratulations on your clearance. I guess my question is now that you have clearance, um, and you already said like it's not easy street necessarily, right? So what comes next? What where do you focus most of your efforts and how do you prioritize? Yeah, so I think for us there's there's a couple areas that we want to focus on. One, the main one is quality. So ensuring that we can migrate all of the quality documentation over in-house, make sure all of that is um, appropriate, kept track of, maintained. We are looking for a quality consultant to help us because we want to be able to grow into this and have this be, you know, something that we manage in-house. So I'm sure I'm in the best environment for that. (laughs) Um, That's a big one. So quality is a big one. Um, Investors always want money in sales. So thinking about how to scale the business, how to do a rollout of a first device. You know, when you have something that's entirely new to the world, 
you might not want to sell 100. You might want to sell more of a limited amount to see how the clinics and how medical professionals use it. Is there something that they might spin a widget left and I would turn it right? You know, you just want to see how it plays out in the real world. So I think for us, making sure that we have the right amount of revenue, but still being able to maintain the rollout and keep track of, you know, how it's being used in the field is important. Um, so quality, revenue, and then really just a, a regulated way to monitor new change. I think we can, I think everyone can always be better in every aspects of, of life. And so I'm sure, you know, our machine is no different for how we could improve. So having an R&D team, having an engineering team that is always thinking about that next step is important for us because we want to offer, you know, the most cutting edge solutions for healthcare. So those would be my kind of three main areas that we're focusing on now. And quality, of course, is a huge one. Now that we're cleared, this is the top priority for, for us internally. I think that's a really critical thing for regulatory, especially maybe a young regulatory person who maybe has a work in a startup to think about. Um, obviously, clearance isn't the end of regulatory. Now you have, you said sales, which means marketing, which may mean, you know, Determining your your labeling and that's a big subject. You don't want to market necessarily off label, um, and that's a whole nother subject. But all those different things, that's a whole strategy that has to be pursued and and looked at. Whereas in a big company, maybe you've already established all of your your intended uses. Your indications are set in stone. We're not expanding um, in, until we go some completely different. Um, and I don't know if that's something you've thought about future indications for use, slowing down your language and thinking about those things. That's probably a, a another topic, but that, that's, those are all really interesting things to think about versus uh, startup versus a, a large enterprise that has been in the market for 50 years, perhaps. So I don't know if you have any comment on that. But a, thank you for my TED talk. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, thinking about future use and future indications is always important. And from a regulatory standpoint, you don't want to market those until you're there. So you have to work with FDA or your regulatory regulatory body to ensure that you're doing all the appropriate steps to get to that point. And, you know, if someone had asked me five years ago, what would have been success for me at that point, being a first-time founder, I would have said FDA clearance because that meant we could sell to the world. And now that we have FDA clearance, I feel like I'm a totally at a new starting line. I'm like, okay, let's go again. So I think... Thinking about like the fact that we hit this huge goal, there's so many more goals we can hit now. <laughs> what, I have one more question, then I'll ask the see if the audience has another question. You're at the new starting line. How do you how do you see yourself transitioning? Because you've already been through several transitions as a CEO from academia to, to all these different things. How are you approaching this new transition? With a lot more of an open mind. <laughs> um, knowing that I can surround myself with expertise that I don't have, knowing when to ask for help and to ask early as opposed to waiting, you know, too long. Um, for me, the new starting line isn't just me, which is really cool because when we got our first funding, it was investors funding Christy and her idea for the startup. And now I have a team of six amazing individuals. And so the starting line is a little more crowded and I like it. And I'm not a runner, but I, but I feel like I've trained now. I've run like a few marathons. And so now that I'm at the line again, it's not, it's not as scary. Um, and so I'm just, I'm ready to, to tackle the future, but with a team. Yeah. Any other questions from the audience? 
Thanks. Um, you just mentioned your 510k clearance. How did you go about selecting your reference device and or whatever that kind of what thing you referenced and, and how did that iterate over time? Yeah. So selecting a predicate is is the big part of of a 510k. As figuring out what device you know you're most similar to and if that can be done. If it can't be, then you're probably a Genovo pathway where you're going to be something a little bit newer. So for us, it was really you know digging into the ophthalmic space. We had ideas of of two devices that we thought we we were most like. We thought, okay, we're definitely like this one, or actually maybe this one. So then we went through intended use. We went through summary statements. Um, we kind of understood more of the nitty gritty tests that each device provided, and then an eye movement monitor. At the end of the day, we had to look at our indication. That's what it came down to. What do we want to indicate to the world? And so for us. Being able to track fixation and saccades, which are the look at my finger, look at my nose, eye movements, um, on a temporal scale, that's what we were doing. We thought, perfect. And that's actually one of our first conversations we had with the FDA. So FDA offers what's called pre-submission meetings where you can meet with them before you do your submissions. We had two of them. And the first meeting was, we've chosen our predicate and kind of, do you agree or not? And, And so many questions. And by bringing that to the FDA, here's our indication. They reiterated with us, indication's the most important. You choose your predicate based on indication. Even though you're using the retina, the indication is what you want to focus on. Because we weren't sure if we needed to have, you know, a retinal imaging device. And they said, no, your indication is for eye movement. Choose a device for a predicate that does eye movement. And luckily, there was an eye movement monitor in the world. And so it was a perfect fit. All right. Thank you so much, Christy. I really appreciate you coming on the the podcast and look forward to following your journey in the next two years. Maybe we can do this again, you know, when you have. (laughs) All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out and let us know either on LinkedIn or I'd personally love to hear from you via email. Uh, check us out. If you're interested in learning about our software built for MedTech, whether it's our document management system, our CAPA management system, the design controls risk management system, or our electronic data capture for clinical investigations, this is software built by MedTech professionals for MedTech professionals. You can check it out at www.greenlight.guru or check the show notes for a link. Thanks so much for stopping in. Lastly, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. It lets us know how we're doing. We appreciate any comments that you may have. Thank you so much. Take care.